So let me begin by saying a thing or two about Hugh Padgham. Hugh Padgham has either engineered and or produced or mixed three of my favorite albums from my favorite band, Drums and Wires, Black Sea, and English Settlement from the band XTC. And while I could literally talk about those albums for hours individually, diving into each one of them with all the reckless enthusiasm of a giddy little schoolgirl, I realize that you, Padgham, has also been involved in a few other records too, many of which you might have heard of. Like that time he produced and engineered Synchronicity by The Police, or the time he produced and engineered In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, or any of his other solo records, or that time he produced three of the biggest selling albums by Genesis, or Paul McCartney, or David Bowie, or Peter Gabriel, or Elton John, or Yes, or any of those good selling solo records from Sting. And that's not even scratching the surface of what you Padgham has accomplished during his career. You Padgham is seen as a brilliant pioneer creating the gated reverb technique of recorded drums that was used continuously throughout the 1980s. There's millions in sales, the five Grammy Awards, and the global recognition of being one of the greatest producers and engineers over the last 50 years. He also owns an independent jazz label called Gearbox Records. This is my conversation with the brilliant You Padgham on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I have to say it's a it's a pleasure to talk to you. I I actually looked at the the U Pageant discography and I realized there's like 41 different albums that you've worked on that I own. So in, in, in one, wow. in one way I'm, I may have helped you buy a car or put a child through college or, <laughs> or something. So the, the, the problem is, is it makes me feel so old. <laughs> well, me too, to be honest. Now we're talking albums that are, you know, 35, 40 years old and, and, and some, I, I, I still listen to, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge XTC fan. So it's one of the so it's one of the things that you know I I I love about your career because so much of what came in that time kind of informed a lot of things that that you would get involved in later on and and, and certainly I, I don't know if people really understand and 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 maybe you can address this there's a there is a big difference between being a producer and an engineer and a mixer Th- these are three very separate types of of skill sets and and you happen to be one of the people out in the world who has all three. Oh well you're very kind to say that but I mean I have XTC really to thank for my my whole career and I very much enjoyed listening to your podcast with with Andy. Oh good well. you heard it. With Andy Partridge yes yes I did. He's great. I think I caught him on a really good day. He was wonderful. Absolutely yeah, I wonderful. That. But it was through through working with um, XTC on drums and wires that I kind of got the job with Steve Lillywhite producing when I was still just engineering with the Peter Gabriel's third solo album. And also through Andy and XTC touring with the police um, is... is um, the, the story went that they were on tour in Australia or South America or somewhere right. and on a bus and Sting said, we, you know, we need to find a new guy for our fourth album. And Andy recommended me 
And so that's how I ended up doing the Ghost in the Machine album. So uh, thank you very much, Andy Partridge. I've uh, <laughs> got a lot to thank you for. There's a... And it's nice because we keep up a bit as well. You do. So, yeah, we do. We speak and, well, we obviously can't meet at the moment, but um, he doesn't live too far away from where I live as well. So what's interesting with with Andy when you when I when I spoke to him is yeah I, I, and I tried really not to focus on his issues with with Todd Rundgren but you've also heard other issues that he's had with other producers and that I think what you have is a guy who is you know very clear in what he wants and it doesn't always necessarily mesh with the producer that's been hired to fulfill that obligation but I have to believe there's lots of times that as a producer, you're dealing with people that may not even really know what they want. They have their songs or they have portions of their songs completed. And there's lots of pressure on an artist to get something accomplished, done or replicate early success. Well, I think if, if, if I have to sort of um, blow my own trumpet in any way, which I'm not very good at doing, um, I think I'm a bit like a sort of chameleon in a way, whereas I, I change my color and spots and stuff to suit the artist that I'm working with. And I think um, people like Todd Rundgren might be too kind of autocratic for, for um, people like Andy, whereas I would say that um, one of the most enjoyable records I made actually was with English Settlement with, you know, with XTC. And um, I kind of like to think that I'm good at just sort of seeing what the band wants, where their vision is, and just going through with that vision so that there isn't this sort of push and pull sort of thing all the time. I mean, I, 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 I respect producers like Todd. Um, the, uh, Trevor Horn, for instance, who's, who's an old friend of mine, he's what I call more of a sort of bossy type producer where he almost became more well-known than the acts that he, he worked <laughs> with. And it's just a different way, you know, it's a different way and sometimes it suits some people and sometimes it doesn't. And, and I would say, when I was working with the police, they were almost, in a, in a way, they were non-producible because they were so sort of, um, uh, it was like a sort of this very small club, the three of them were, and they all had this sort of love-hate relationship and you couldn't be bossy with them. And, and, and sometimes when they were fighting, uh, literally sometimes fisticuffs in, in, in the studio. And I tried to sort of be Mr. Producer and pull them apart and come on guys. And they just used to tell me to F off, you know. <laughs> I I read Andy Summer's book, uh, I think it was last summer. And he was talking about, you know, the relationship he had with Sting and with, with, uh, with Stuart Copeland. And it sounds very much, you know, as you say, there's all, there had always been tension and, you know, when you're talking about Ghost in the Machine and, and certainly Synchronicity, where, I mean, they're about to release the biggest album of their career. It seems to me like part of your job as a producer is also to be somewhat of a of a, of a head coach or psychiatrist at the same time, too. I think so. I think a lot of the job 
is um, being um, a diplomat, really, and trying to sort of um, read situations, whether it be psychologically or musically. I mean, for instance, it might you might realize that someone's not in the right state of mind to to sing a, a song at a particular time and so so you would sort of or they haven't been singing very well and you would nurture them into um into giving them more confidence or just thinking well hang on this is not the day to do it let's do something else so there's a lot of there's a lot of that but like i said with the police they they you know it was a love hate thing i mean there's only three of them and they'd spent a lot of time together had become very successful um there was envy around and 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 you know because stuart thought that it was his band because he started it and then obviously sting um wrote ended up writing more of the hits obviously but i think at the end of the day they you know they did eventually um, regroup for a tour, didn't they? I mean, they it was did. some time ago, you know, probably 15 <laughs> years ago now, but even then, we are talking about 40 years ago we were making <laughs> those records nearly, well, which is quite frightening. I was a young little boy then. <laughs> well, so was I. I was a, a junior in, in high school, third year in high school, when Synchronicity came out. It was one of those albums for us that was like, you know, it was the biggest album, you know, maybe of our high school career. It was like, it, it, it meant a lot. To yeah. people, so you know, when you when I hear about you know stories of, you know, about that band and, and about what went on, and then try to you know put yourself in the shoes of like you know, there's two other guys in this band, and then there's Sting, and all the eyes are on Sting, but you've got two brilliant musicians backing him up. I mean, there's no question yeah. of Andy Summers and 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 Stuart Copeland's you know. I think that some band. of the for me some of the best bands have been three-piece bands because you do have to be extremely good at your job in a, to be a three-piece jam i mean another english three-piece band that i absolutely adore was the jam mm. and, and and again there was a sort of anger and tension in there and i think the with respect to um synchronicity i i think that tension within the members of the band really comes out on some of the songs on on synchronicity um but it's such a weird album for me because there's sort of um well i remember you know good and bad times about it and and being thoroughly relieved when we'd finished making it because it, <laughs> it had taken a while and um with very much ups and downs on in it during the making of it and i i was very proud of it but but pleased to be out of the studio, I think, right. as as well. well but we, I kind of always remember my assistant on um, after we mixed it in in the studio in Canada, and he said, "Can I make my own copy of the record without Mother on it?" <laughs> <laughs> when you when you hear a song that uh, an artist presents, and 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 in, in the case of the Police. You know, every breath you take is, is is written. It's basically a very simple song. But when you hear it for the very first time, either as a producer or an engineer, what, you know, whatever role you're serving, do you hear it in your head right away saying, there's no doubt this is a hit? Or do, do those moments still come as a complete surprise to you? Well, um, the honest truth is that the first time I heard 
every breath you take as a demo uh, in, a, in a little London studio that Sting used to do his demos in. Um, I knew that was a hit, but I could say that less than the fingers on one hand <laughs> with the rest of my career right. I think it, it's 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 I think it's um a bit sometimes a bit sort of presumptuous to think that you know a hit because I've worked on some fantastic songs that have nowhere never even made the charts <laughs> so but that song definitely definitely stuck out and I was in the studio listening to it with um, Miles Copeland, the manager, um, not not the rest of the band, just Miles, myself, and I think Sting's roadie. And I always remember Miles looking at me and he said, Hugh Pedram, that's a goddamn hit. <laughs> and it, you better make sure you damn well make it one. <laughs> So there, there you go. There was pressure on me right from the get-go on that song, and of course we had we we had quite a lot of trouble making that song because Sting wanted a really simple drum part, and and Stuart, bless his heart, always wanted to show off because he's such a great drummer, and he wanted to play something completely different, and. In the end, the song ended up with the um, bass drum coming off a, a machine and then him putting the other parts on separately. And many years later, when they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they, obviously the, um, the, they wanted the band to play Every Breath You Take because it was the most famous song they did and, St and Stuart didn't want to play it because it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to show off his drums uh, uh, excellence well enough. I, th I think when you're in the Hall of Fame, I think by that point, most people are already aware of what you can do in the drums. I would have thought so too, <laughs> but there you go. You talk about drums though, you know, there are certain drum patterns, certain drum moments that stick into everyone's Heads, you know, everyone from, you know, Jeff Picaro's uh, Rosanna Shuffle to John Bonham and uh, Fool in the Rain. But it only takes like a simple thing to really make a career. And Phil Collins in the air tonight would be a perfect example of that. A, a, a simple drum fill that you uh, were responsible for really turning into something magical. I mean, if. If anything defines Phil Collins' career, it was it was that song and that moment. In a way, you could maybe make the argument that without that drum fill, maybe Genesis doesn't have as many albums sold as a result of it. It's like it was like a career-defining moment for Phil Collins. Yes, it was. Yeah, we certainly never thought that was going to be a single in a million years. But when you <laughs> But when you create that 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 effect on those on those drums and they come in as powerful as they do and you're hearing it in the studio for the very first time, were people blown away by it? I mean, did you understand how special that was? Did the did even Phil understand how special that was at the time? Um, well, there would there would only have been a few of us in the studio at the time, and I think the drum fill, 
I don't think he had thought about it particularly beforehand. He just thought we we decided that we were going to have we were going to shock the monkey, uh, as Peter Gabriel said, <laughs> shock the listener by having something come in that you weren't expecting. That was the whole idea, and um, and so we discussed that we, we'd have the drums come in quite late. Also, you know, not thinking that it would ever be a single. So it didn't matter that the drums didn't come in till four minutes or whenever it was, you know. <laughs> and um, yes, I mean, the sound was really kind of developed when I first met Phil during Peter Gabriel's third album, when we had this drum uh, uh, loop that he played live on the song called The Intruder, the first song on on, on that album. Yep. So we knew about this um, big sound that we could get, and it was the same studio. It was the townhouse in London, Studio 2, the Stone Room. That's where that sound was was sort of when we first developed it or heard it or yeah. invented it or whatever word you want to <laughs> say. Um, and so we knew, uh, and one of the big things about these um, drum sounds is that there's, if you, if you think about the intruder, I mean, in fact, the whole of Peter Gabriel's third album didn't have any cymbals or hi-hats on it, and nor does that drum fill on In The Air Tonight. The minute you put cymbals in there, because you're squashing the room with electronic compressors, the sound, mm -hmm. squashing the sound so much, if you hit a cymbal, it just goes like a sort of <laughs> explosion <laughs> like that, and it and it wrecks the sound of the drums. So that that that's the one thing that um, if you ever did want cymbals on that sort of sound, you had to overdub them afterwards. But it was quite difficult to mix the song, to have the drums come in loud enough to be shocking at the end when you when you weren't expecting them but you couldn't have the rest of the song so low that it couldn't that be heard right yeah it couldn't be heard so there was quite a sort of difficult thing to get the the whole you know the whole thing right all, all the way from mixing to even in the uh, uh, in the mastering studio and of course in those days it was pre uh, pre cd so you had to make sure that the needle wasn't going to jump out of the grooves. <laughs> it seemed like it, almost everybody wanted to replicate that strong drum sound. I mean, there was an XTC do uh, documentary done a couple of years ago with a lot of time spent on on Black Sea talking about Terry Chambers and, and that drum sound and how it, I mean, everybody in the 80s wanted to replicate what you and, and Steve Lillywhite had done on Black Sea. And, it, yeah. and, I, and I wonder... Did, did you guys make some sort of financial arrangement to make that happen? Well, I wish we had. <laughs> but uh, again, Terry Chambers played that drum, the drums on Black Sea in the same room. It was all that room. And mm. then can you believe it? The townhouse um, eventually tore that room down. In really? The 90s. Yeah. I mean, the, it had gone from being owned by Virgin Records to EMI. Um, and I think even then it went on to Sanctuary and they just decided um, one day that we want to have a bigger control room and therefore, and I, and I guess they thought maybe, I don't know, no one ever asked me. I just heard they'd torn the room down and made a big control room instead. And I went, what? You crazy. Wow. So, so tell me about your, your, I know you've had a long friendship with, with Peter Gabriel working on that one album and then, you know, having him kind of 
help you get other work along with Phil and 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 Genesis. But you know, for people that may not realize how, and he may not even get the credit he deserves, how really innovative Peter Gabriel truly is. I mean, those early records, everything up to, to certainly to to so where he made you know, uh, sold a lot of records, but those early ones, you know, three would be a perfect example. Those were all powerful records. And I don't know if people have ever really given Peter Gabriel the credit for the kind of genius he has. Yeah, he is. He, he is um, a genius and he's also one of the most likable human beings you could ever, ever meet. And that's pretty rare in this business, I think. <laughs> No, he he's he's lovely, and I'm really um, honoured to um, know him, and um, we 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 still have contact with each other as well, which is really nice. Although I've I've never worked on any of his other records at all. Do you keep um, reminding so, him of that fact? Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> I should. <laughs> I did I did one other thing with with. Peter, which was um, a song that he did with Yusu and Dor called Shaking the Tree. Do you remember that? I do song? remember that. Yeah. So I worked on that. So that was that was fun. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Not many people worked on Peter Gabriel three. And yeah. I was one of them. And so it certainly helped my career. And um, and and um, Peter's still working as hard as he ever has done, which is yeah. brilliant. Talk about artists you've only worked with uh, one time, although you've worked on other projects for him, would be David Bowie and uh, The Tonight Record, which, if I'm not mistaken, that was the one he did right after Let's Dance. So that was that was a you know, pretty important record for him. But uh, tell me what it's like, what it was like to work with, uh, with David Bowie. Well, I have to say it was a, a strange set of, set of circumstances how I happened to work with David. And they were basically, um, he, he was told by EMI that he, they wanted another record off him after the success of Let's Dance. And he'd been on the road with it. And he doesn't, famously doesn't really write on the road. And um, anyway, he came back and Bob Clearmountain, who engineered Let's Dance with Nile Rogers producing, was asked by David to do it. But... Bob, I think, was working with, he used to do all Bruce Springsteen's stuff. And I think he was already booked to do a Springsteen record. So he said, look, I'm really sorry, I can't do it. But my friend, um, Hugh Padgham, would be perfect. And so somehow I got the call from my manager. But it was only engineering gig. But I thought, how can you possibly turn down working with David Bowie? And also it would be what we call in England, a busman's holiday where I wouldn't have the, the pressure of producing it as well. So I just thought this is gonna be a most fantastic time, which it was for many reasons that I'll say in a second, but we got to the studio and David didn't really have many songs written at all. And if you look back on the credits on the record, there's quite a few covers. Um, and two or three originals but he had um, a young guy come in produce it called Derek Bramble and the long and the short of it is that it didn't really work out with um, Derek producing and so David asked me if I would finish off the record so 
I've sort of got a co-production credit on it. But the thing is, it was too late. I, I think I would have been more assertive if I'd been involved right from the very beginning mm -hmm. with the choice of the songs and, and stuff like that. And it had got to the period where David likes to work really fast and we had sort of slightly agonized through the recording of, of the record. And I mean, he if he could make a record in a couple of weeks, then he, you know, that's what he would be, that, that would be his preference. And we were like, I don't know, six weeks in or something. We were also in the same studio that I did the mixing of Synchronicity, which was a studio in the middle of nowhere in, in Canada and literally in the middle of nowhere. And I think David was bored because there was no nightlife and all he wanted to do was finish <laughs> the record. So I felt I was handed a, a, a poison chalice in a way, but saying that David was such an unbelievably great guy. He's also, I think, probably the best singer I've ever worked with. When he sang, you're not talking about five takes or 10 takes or this, that and the other, he would literally go in the studio and sing it either first time or second time perfectly. Wow. And, and, and I just, I got on so well with him. Um, it, 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 it was, you know, I'm just so honored to have known and worked with him. And it's so sad that he's not with us now. Mm. But I made also a lifelong friend of Carlos Alomar um, and, and Robin Clark, his wife, who were on those sessions. They had played on Let's Dance. And um, so I've, I, I just, I look back on it with such fondness and respect for, for David. I did work a little bit with him on um, some Tin Machine stuff late, later on, a few years after that. Right, right like on the second album, it, it, yeah. Yes, it was definitely a, a real high point in, in my career. I mean, who who doesn't want to work with the likes of Peter Gabriel <laughs> and or David Bowie, you know? The one and only time I, I met David Bowie, I was actually turned, he actually turned us down for an interview. And I was like, it was soul crushing. We were at a, a music festival in Milwaukee and he was playing there that one night and he was playing with Adrian Ballou, the guitar players, brilliant guy. Yeah. And Adrian yeah. had just, uh, just released a, a record and David was involved in it. And me and my partner went up to him and says, Hey, you know, can we have, you know, five minutes of your time? And he said, are you playing the new Adrian Ballou record? And we're like, well, no, no radio stations are, are playing that, but we love it. And we would love to talk to, to one or both of you. And he, he was, he was incredibly polite about it. He was not, a, a jerk, but he, he declined. And we were like, the two of us are walking, you know, <laughs> walking back and just feeling, Oh God, we're just so dejected. We went so desperately to talk to David Bowie, but he was very kind about it. I have to say, even in rejecting us, I felt like, okay, well, at least he was nice about it. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, if you remember rightly, um, the, the, when he was, um, the, the spiders, when he was Ziggy Stardust, that's right. It. If, if you remember rightly, when he was Ziggy Stardust and he basically fired the band at the end of the concert <laughs> at the Hammersmith Odeon, the Spiders band, and none of them knew anything about it. Now, that's a pretty vicious thing to do. <laughs> when, you, when you take on a project, and obviously, you know, between 
you know, early eighties to, to late eighties into the, the 1990s. I mean, you were, yeah, I mean, you were like from one project to the, to the next several albums, uh, in, in a year, but when you're asked to do things now, what are you looking for to make that commitment? Is, is it, is it the artists themselves, the, the demos you hear? I mean, what are you looking for? Well, um, I think nowadays I'm not really looking to do that sort of thing anymore, um, is the perfectly honest truth. I mean, that period of the 80s and working so much cost me my first marriage because I was married to my job, not my wife. I was just away the whole time and, and so on and so forth. And I think, secondly, the the scene has changed a lot now massively since the beginning of this century and I think rock music or whatever you want to call it pop rock or I have no idea what genre I'm sort of you know involved in but I I don't think um I, I I I just don't think the scene is the same anymore you know when we were making records back then there were no computers, no computer games as such, really. Um, and when when I was a kid growing up, you either spent your pocket money on buying records or going to the cinema or going to the pub, or hopefully all three in a way. <laughs> but um, it, 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 it now, I, I don't know. I think it's why a lot of these 80s type, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s type bands and music is living on so well. I think there's a lot of fantastic music out there, but it's so much harder to find it now. I mean, my, my, most of my involvement now is I am involved in a small jazz label called Gearbox Records. We're right. based in England. We're very much involved in high quality sound and, and we, we, have contemporary jazz artists on our label and we also re-release um old tapes if we can find them from from jazz people and i always had an underlying love of jazz whether it be you know the the traditional names that we all know miles davis etc etc roland kirk bloody blah, blah but also i kind of secretly loved the jazz rock scene in the <laughs> 70s and um early 80s, you know, the, the weather reports or the return to forevers and right. Chick Career and Herbie Hancock and all those people. And so I'm involved um, uh, as a, not only as a producer engineer, but I also um, own a bit of the company and stuff. And so I, we make records in like a week at the most, three, three days recording, two days mixing you know wow. five days that's that's a record and it and it doesn't cost a fortune you're not spending hours and hours although i don't mean to be hypocritical because i said that david bowie sang very fast but normally doing vocals on on a on a on a record is pretty time consuming and um getting the best out of it because everything you're making on a record is is for posterity but with the jazz scene Number one, they're all fantastic musicians. 
although I was very lucky to work with all these bands in the in the 80s that were great musicians as well. But the, the, the jazz scene is a whole different thing. You're more or less just playing it live. And I really enjoy that because it keeps my hand in with um, listening and, and music, but it also keeps my, my um, chops on the case for engineering and, and stuff like that. That is mostly what I do now. So I hate to say that um, poor old Joe, my manager, um, I get asked to do this, that and the other, and I usually reject them. But, you know, the scene is so different, not only how I described before, but if an American band wanted to work with me, I live in England, the cost of flying me out there and putting me up in a hotel, and I'm talking modestly now, would probably be more than their budget. So it, 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 in many ways, geographically, it makes it untenable. But saying that, you know, I, when I was working the other day with uh, a record for our label Gearbox, there's so many less studios around now, but the studios that are around are quite busy. So there is, you know, there is stuff going on, which is great. It's not just all in the bedroom stuff. Right. When you, but when you talk about the, the scene changing, and I, and I have to believe the technology has been responsible for a, 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 a good deal of that. People have more of an ability now to have a do-it-yourself approach to their own music, to not only recording it, but also uh, distributing it themselves, or even record companies you know, struggle to figure out where their role is in everything. Sure. I mean, music has changed so dramatically as a result of the technology and the internet and sharing and MP3s. I mean, do you think that's that's been a part of it? And do you think that's been a negative? I, 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 th I think it's a double-edged sword, actually, because I think what's fantastic is that you can buy a laptop and you, you, for very little money, you can have software in your laptop that makes it into a recording studio. And so you can make your own record at home and for very little money. And in the old days, you had to pretty well have a recording contract to be able to afford to go into, into the studio. So um, it, it's leveled the playing field a lot, which I think is fantastic. And because eventually I think the cream rises to the top. Mm -hmm. And so, in the old days, it was much more of an exclusive sort of club to get a record deal and then be able to make a, a, a record in, in the studio. So from that point of view, I think it's great. From a negative point of view, I was talking to Carlos Alomar the other day, who I was refer talking about with David Bowie. And nowadays, if he gets asked to play guitar, on something, he will be sent some files and he'll record his guitar on it at home and then send it back. The negative side of that, well, the positive side is you, you've got Carlos on your, on your record or whatever, but the negative side is you haven't got Carlos's smile and laugh and beam, beaming. You have, what I'm trying to say is you haven't got the vibe of the collective of people working together in a, in, a, in the studio. And that I really miss a lot. I really do. And I think in the old days before we even had um, computer automated consoles, it was like everybody in the band was helping to mix the record, you know, and um, you got all the faders and, 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 
people, you know, it's that camaraderie and 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 um, thing of all being together, which I think is missing now. And and um, but the one thing you can't change is change, and so you have to just you know you 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 go along with it and there's there's good stuff and and not good stuff but you know to be honest even when i was growing up i didn't particularly like all the sort of sugar boppy type pop songs that were in the charts all we wanted to wait for was the new rolling stones album or the new beatles album or something we didn't we 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 hated you know loads of bands as well so <laughs> Well, it could have been worse. You could what have been you, you, you could have been an XTC fan and have to wait, you know, ten years, nine years, fifteen years for for new records and new material. That's uh, that's one of the curses and one of the curses and the benefits of waiting and being patient with uh, with Andy Partridge and, and XTC. Yes, that's 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 true. It's such a shame that they sort of um, he and Colin sort of fell out, really, because I don't think. I don't think there will be another XTC record, but um, I think in a way, I, I, I do think that XTC made some brilliant stuff after English Settlement, which was obviously the last one I made, but that that was the last time they were a band as a band, if you see what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Perry went to live in Australia. He's back now actually, but um, they didn't tour, obviously, after that, and so it was. Their records were studio opuses, you know, yeah. which there is some amazing stuff as as well. The only other band I, that I, that uh, that I really wanted to ask you about because no one ever talks about them, and it's one of these bands where I thought they never got the credit they they I think they deserve because I thought their some of their songs are unbelievable. Was Split Ends, and that's a, that's uh, a. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a band I know you work with a couple of times and some of those records and, and the, the, the Finn brothers are such great songwriters, but just maybe, yeah. but just maybe too quirky for like a main street, a mainstream acceptance. Yes, exactly. I mean, they were, um, they really, to be honest, XTC and Split Ends are my favorite two sort of bands, especially if you, if you do, um, put them into the the uh, thing of great bands who never made it as as well as they should have done and um obviously neil finn went on to have a lot of success with crowded house, house. Yeah. but tim his elder brother was very very talented as well and they were amazing all of them great musicians again their their songs absolutely fantastic totally great guys really enjoyable but just had an awful lot of bad luck i mean we we recorded a song called six months in a leaky boat that came out exactly when england went to war with argentina on, on the falklands islands which right. you guys in america probably don't remember very much but it meant our our navy sailing about six weeks over to to there so of course none of the radio stations would would play it and yet it was a great song but then you also worked on like a message to my girl from conflicting emotions and i hear that song i'm going why is that not just a massive hit it's every bit as beautiful as any other song they've maybe ever written it would i mean what a great ballad that was and it just it didn't go anywhere especially 
you know, especially in, in the in the States. And I don't think it did very much in the UK either. No, no, no. Again, it's one of those things where we started our conversation talking about, do you know it's a hit? <laughs> and that was a classic one that it wasn't too difficult to think that is a hit. But if everything doesn't combine, the record company doesn't do its job or whoever, you know, publicity, this, that and the other, takes two to tango, I'm afraid. It's a, it's a shame. They did. They deserved better. They well, certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I literally could talk to you all day because there's like nine million other records I'd want to talk about. But I do appreciate uh, your time today. You. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. And I love it, by the way. And you. Oh, had thank some, you. Um, uh, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts now. And oh. um You've 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 had some amazing people on the show. I congratulate you on it. And, Thank you. Um, may you have many good more people to come. I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you very much, you. Okay, that was pretty damn cool. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please share it with everybody you know. I'd love to hear what you think, and you can always email me at bax at rock102.com. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.